Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. The program explores the unique challenges and advantages of working for change in regional communities and small towns, yet the themes are universal in an age where the main challenge of our times is how to navigate the imminent threat of a warming globe. This week, we're talking to Jessie Boylan about her PhD thesis, an upcoming art installation that is part of the Castlemaine State Festival. Her work has taken her out into the wilds of a remote outpost at the edge of Tasmania, a place called Cape Grimm, where there is a science lab that tests the air coming in off the ocean there. Without land or human habitation for hundreds of kilometres, the air blowing in off the ocean to Cape Grimm is considered the best air in the world to get a base measurement for the quality of our atmosphere. Carbon and other greenhouse gases, amongst other things, are tested to see how the world's atmosphere is faring. Her artwork, her life as an activist, documentary photographer, and her work around the slow emergency that is climate change are all topics covered in our chat for this episode. Before we begin, though, I'd really like to send a huge thanks to the Salvage Yard, they're a local business here in Castlemaine who have just sponsored Saltgrass on Main FM. These awesome folk are already station sponsors, but are fans of the show and also passionate advocates for sustainability. So they're show sponsors as well as station sponsors. You can find out more about them at thesalvageyard.com.au. And just as a heads up, whether you're listening in Castlemaine on Main FM or in Upway on 3MDR, Community Radio really values and needs sponsors. So if you want to sponsor either 3MDR or Main FM, I really think you should get on board. You get some great perks and promotion on air as part of the deal. But the main benefit is really that beautiful, good feeling you get for supporting your community radio station and all the good that they do in the community. So I highly recommend it. And yeah, huge thanks to the Salvage Yard for sponsoring Saltgrass and Main FM. I'm especially pleased that these guys have sponsored the show because I've gone to them a lot personally. Many times I've gone down there looking for materials for my various building projects and looking at what I've done around my property. I feel really good about my spaces knowing that they're made out of recycled material. Anna and Matt run the place and they put a huge amount of effort into preparing, sorting and organising just ginormous amounts of material so that it's easy to find and figure out if those pieces will work for you for your project. They have ornate windows and toilets, sinks, sheets of tin, lengths of timber, crazy random things you never knew existed. It's amazing down there. And it often makes me want to build a whole new house just so I can use some of these pieces that they've got down there. And look, this spiel is not part of the sponsorship deal. I'm actually just really happy that they've sponsored Saltgrass and I'm celebrating my show's first sponsor. So this is a little personal ode to joy that they have done this. So thank you, The Salvage Yard. Now, I've also been planning to interview those guys for a while now on the topic of recycled building materials in construction. And they are keen to talk about some things I hadn't thought to ask them. So it's really cool. I like it when people I talk to have got whole different topics that I hadn't even considered asking them about. So when I get a chance to interview them, we'll be talking about some things like the hidden dynamics of the building industry and why more building materials are not salvaged when buildings get knocked down and what a waste that is. I'll also be chatting with Mark Anstey from Lot 19 and he's built almost all of that amazing place, the gallery, the studios, 
musical stages, everything out of secondhand and salvage materials. So that's a nice pairing of topics and you can look out for that episode coming soon. But back to today's episode. Before we hear from Jessie Boylan, artist at Cape Grimm and her atmospheric scientists, I would like to acknowledge that salt grass is produced on Jara country, home of the Jajarong people. Jessie and I both live on Jara country and we pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com. Now, for those of you who don't live in central Victoria, the Castlemaine State Festival is a major arts event in our region. It happens every two years and has happened since 1976. The town squeezes art, performance, music and theatre into every nook and cranny. Right from the start, the festival set about to bring major artists and works to the region and in doing so really helped cement Castlemaine and Surrounds as a cultural powerhouse in regional Victoria. We also have a fabulous fringe festival that runs alongside it, which showcases local and emerging art as well. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the shape and nature of the state festival this year, with the international acts unable to travel and venues having limited numbers allowed. So many of the performances and events are outdoors or will have a limited audience. I had a look at the program when it was launched a month or so ago and saw a couple of items that I thought would be interesting for Saltgrass. That is, artists working on the theme of climate change and the environment. Today's episode is the first of these. And another one that stood out was an audio experience called Hear, Hear, as in hear something right here. (laughs) A theme that comes up repeatedly in my conversations with people for this show is the importance of place, of knowing where you are. What are the stories and seasons of this land right where you are? This is a fundamental part of learning to appreciate, love and respect the earth, and therefore a fundamental part of any action around climate change. I will hopefully have a chance to interview the creators of Here Here, a project that takes you out to our beloved waterhole, the Res, where you will walk with headphones listening to people tell their stories of connection to that beautiful place. I'm looking forward to experiencing this artwork and also chatting to the creators for our next episode. The other is, of course, today's subject, the work of Jessie Boylan, a Castlemaine resident currently working on a PhD with RMIT School of Art. In the words of the State Festival program, her visual art installation reveals the work carried out at the Cape Grim Baseline Air Pollution Station in Tasmania and CSIRO's research laboratory in Victoria. Boylan's long-standing interest in our symbiotic relationship with the environment has never been more pertinent. The artist uses photography, video and sound to explore the consequential social and psychological upheaval. I went to Jessie's studio to find out more about this work. Nestled at the bottom of a garden, her studio was fascinating. Bookshelves full of books I instantly wanted to browse through on human rights issues, photography, art, climate and philosophy. Shelves of camera lenses and parts, as well as framed artwork and objects from her travels and adventures. Her current thoughts and questions were pinned up onto the wall in post-it notes with phrases to help her navigate her thesis and explore the themes of slow emergency and climate change. We sat down to begin with my dog Bobby lying in the sun coming through her windows. I started by asking her how long she spent down in Tassie at Cape Grimm. 
just five days walking around the outside of the Cape Grim station. It's also called Kenanook in the local language. How do you describe yourself as an artist? I describe myself as a photography, video and sound artist who uses these mediums to explore environmental and social justice themes primarily, coming from a documentary photography background but moving much more into an installation kind of space now. Mm. And I work a lot in collaboration with others, which is really important to me as well. Mm. And you're currently studying a PhD. Where are you studying that? Yeah, I'm doing a PhD at RMIT in the School of Art. And my topic is around how to use art or how art can be part of a conversation to address slow climate emergencies and extinction and mass extinctions. And it's obviously that's a huge topic. So I'm trying to use one angle, which is to investigate this air monitoring station at Cape Grim and to look at the kind of ways in which air and atmosphere, I can use those kind of aspects to talk about these bigger global issues so just focusing on kind of one obviously it's a huge topic that I've gone into but yeah using one site as a kind of as a springboard to talk about bigger issues. Mm. Reflecting on your topic it's the idea of this slow emergency is in comparison to say a natural disaster which is an immediate emergency mm. but the slow emergency is climate change and it's what people are now calling the climate emergency. I do think it's really hard to communicate to people who haven't taken the time to investigate it or think about it too much and maybe don't want to think about it. Mm. It's really hard to communicate that this emergency is still an emergency even though it's really slow. Mm. And we are seeing the impacts of climate change now, but it might be another 10 years before it really becomes too hard. Yeah, yeah. Well, for me, like slow emergencies are kind of, you know, there's this just kind of fairly new field of research around slow emergencies, which is these kind of forms of harm and damage, which are continuously happening. And they're kind of happening out of sight. And they're kind of happening on a slow scale and of kind of pervasive yet subtle ways. And it's not just in climate change, like obviously things like family violence and intergenerational trauma and systemic racism, these things are also slow emergencies. But, you know, my area is around slow climate emergencies. So we think about deforestation, you know, this is kind of things that whilst they're happening, you might not see the the gradual effects until there's a kind of a rupture, you know, like we kind of respond when there are ruptures like bushfires and earthquakes and floods. But the things that are perpetually happening, are, you know, pesticides seeping into riverbanks and the gradual build-up of what these things do to both people and, and land and country and animals. And so to try and visualise or communicate something that is out of sight yet perpetually happening is quite a challenge. And for me, that's an exciting challenge. Generally with my work, I'm not trying to to go, you must think this or you must feel this and then you must have this response. Trying to have other avenues for people to come in and engage with something, maybe it's affectively or through emotion, and then how they respond to that work is kind of what they take from it, not necessarily prescribed by me or they have to have a certain outcome. Yeah, so I guess it sounds like you have spent the majority of your adult life as an activist as well as making art and following your inclinations towards filmmaking and photography and I feel like activism and it's something I come up against in my interviews a lot of activism is sort of very blunt 
tools where it's like trying to hit people over the head with knowledge and like if they just understood they'd get it or you know or trying to say you're a bad person if you don't get it that sort of thing Mm. and I think that really can turn a lot of people off and make them just stop listening Mm. and some activism is very effective I'm not saying it's Mm. not necessary yeah but I think at the opposite extreme is sometimes art can be too subtle Mm. or only a small audience sees it so how do you feel about art as a means of Mm. of communicating this stuff to people yeah I mean I think that's that big question of being an artist in and, and you know having kind of political agenda or ideas that are about communicating particular issues which is like how do you know if it's effective or how do you know if it's reaching anyone and I think that obviously there are measuring tools in which you can implement into your exhibition processes where you do community engagement processes and you don't show things only in white boxes and you try and find avenues to show works outside of those spaces or you actively invite people into those spaces or you make public shows or you do surveys that engage with people about how they respond to those particular works or have community who are affected by it engaged in those processes either from the beginning so that they know that that stuff is happening and they feel involved, which is a lot of what my previous work is about. And we can, I don't know if you want to talk about that. I think you can only hope that you're another voice in the story and to have multiple voices telling these stories, I think is a good thing because you have different sectors of society adding to this conversation. And the more voices that are out there talking about these things, I think obviously means the more people are going to see those things and yeah I mean you can only rely on feedback really and and trying to actively kind of engage with particular campaigns like in my previous work kind of anti-nuclear movement or you know conversations that broaden out the scope of what the role of art is Mm -hmm. and it can often play a role alongside a campaign to form another way of engaging with that story And in this context, it's working with science and scientists and actually engaging scientists who might not necessarily otherwise see or engage with art. And so also going, how can we have a conversation through this process? And I don't normally engage with science on that kind of level. You know, I use it all the time in terms of my understanding of the world, but I don't go into the micro and macro detail of air particles and (laughs) what that means you know and so there's this conversation that's happening which allows both them into this conversation and me and and us into that one yeah so why don't you describe this particular project that we'll be showing at the Castlemaine State Festival which opens on the 19th of March 2021 and it'll be showing at the Goods Shed which is a big cavernous kind of building right next to the train line in Castlemaine Can you explain to the listener what the project is and and how you formulated it and what they'll be able to experience if they go in there? Yeah, so I'm exploring the Cape Grim Air Monitoring Station in northwest Tasmania. I'm using that as my main focal point and also the CSIRO headquarters of Oceans and Atmosphere in Aspendale in Victoria, which is where a lot of the scientists who work at Cape Grim are often based and they've got the air archive there, which we can talk about. Yeah, tell us what that is. <laughs> well, they've been storing air and collecting and storing air from Cape Grim since 1976. So they've got this historical archive. That means every year that I've been alive, they've got a bottle of air, multiple bottles of air from that year. Yep, exactly. It's amazing. And back then it was, you know, in terms of CO2 in the atmosphere, it was 330 
parts per million, right? And now we're at 410 or 415. And so there's like this concept of what was life like in 90, what was the air quality? What was like, what was human activity like in 1976? And for me, it conjures up imagination. It conjures up kind of where were we at, you know, and already back then people knew what burning fossil fuels would do. And so, yeah, I'm using these two sites as a way to talk about air, this invisible substance, which is air, and how it affects all of us globally, you know, human and beyond human, and how we're connected by this substance which we need to survive, and yet our actions on this earth are perpetually, slowly damaging the thing that we also need to survive. And so in this kind of process of organisms supporting one another, we're doing this process where we're actually destroying something which supports us and I'm trying to speak to these ideas at the moment it's observational it's observing the side at Cape Grim which is a really interesting side it's it's also called Kenanook which is in the local language there do you know what the cool people were called the Pirapa but there's a few different clans that were there so it's not just the Pirapa people but a few different ones and obviously lots of Tasmanian Aboriginal history there's a lot being done now about renaming sites and there's heaps around Cape Grim around the sites there so all the places like there's a site there where the massacre was called Suicide Bay which was in 1828 I think 30 Aboriginal men were pushed off during the Black Wars and they called it Suicide Bay because of because people got murdered there yeah which is horrific. And of course, they've got other names for those sites. I got to meet a woman, traditional owner from that area, who took me out to Suicide Bay to welcome me there. I wanted to make sure that while I was there, I wasn't filming things that I shouldn't do. And obviously, it's a very dark and sad history that's caught up with the air monitoring station there. So it's got these layers of history that are really interesting and tragic and awful, but also incredibly stunning and beautiful. And there's a lot of strength and hearing a lot of stories about what people did living there, like in this kind of rugged and and wild that very gets very windy to the point where you can't open your car doors and everything's shaking, cameras shaking and the seas get very intense and rough and yeah, Stories of women crossing the bay to go and hunt mutton birds and swimming back again. and Yeah, so it's a very interesting site. And so there are these like interweaving histories which are about this, this air that, you know, is considered baseline. It's supposed to be the cleanest air in the world. And the air that travels there has not touched land for some time. And so they can use it as a, as a kind of barometer or a baseline for global levels of CO2 and what background atmospheric levels are. So if they were trying to measure it somewhere in the Northern Hemisphere, you'd have massive land masses with multiple cities. And so you'd get condensed air that's more indicative of that particular region. Yeah, you'd have higher levels of city-based pollution. And so from Cape Grim on the northwest of Tassie, you've got massive ocean. Mm. What is the next bit of land? Is it South America? Well, this goes down to... Antarctica, I guess. You look, yeah, like you're going sort of looking southwest over the Southern Ocean and also Bass Strait. So you're kind of at this point of the oceans meeting there. Yeah, right. But if you, I guess if you kept going, you would get over to South America and... Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately all the wind, like that's a long way. (laughs) It's a very long way. And it's so interesting to think about, you know, when you're there, like where is the wind, where is the air coming from? Yeah. 
you know, and what are they storing and who else has touched it? And, yeah. And what has it seen along the way? You know, I love this kind of imagining of, of those things. So it is incredible. The fact that the air that we breathe is the same air that the dinosaurs breathed, but recycled through trees and through us and through other animals and through the kelp in the ocean and, mm. you know, mm. whatever else. Yeah. It's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, it's so amazing. And it's, and it's still, for me, a lot of the exploration is around this kind of invisibility of this substance as well. And sometimes we can see it or it, it forms in other ways through wind and particles and dust and things that you can kind of visualise. But yeah. ultimately, it's invisible and it's all around us. Again, that to me, that speaks to this invisibility of these kind of slow emergencies, which are perpetually happening and all around us, yet we're not, you know, how do we incorporate those things into daily life how do we make the air visible yeah or just just try and have other conversations about these kind of Mm. interdependent relationships you know between humans and everything else every other thing (laughs) you know and and these are big theoretical questions or philosophical questions that I don't necessarily imagine will come out through the work, but they're about how do you, what would, what would it mean to decenter humans in this conversation? And what would it mean if we put ourselves as part of all living species? And I try and use it as a, as a space of imagination rather than prescription. Yeah. Hmm. So you went down for five days. I stayed just nearby. I wasn't living on site because of COVID restrictions. I wasn't actually able to go inside this station. Oh, really? I was wandering around outside like a creep with all my recording gear and peeking in through the windows every so often and freaking the scientists out. (laughs) Um, But no, they were very welcoming and I've obviously been planning this for more than a year to go down and, yeah, they would come out and and chat with me and we'd go on walks and they'd talk about what different things did and what those sounds were from that machine, that piece of equipment over there and what that radon thing did. And so they would come out and talk to me, but I wasn't actually able to go inside. But I will revisit Cape Grim over the next three years, multiple, multiple times. But I did go also to Aspendale, which is where they have a lot of similar measuring and analysis kind of equipment there. Yeah, it's really interesting. You often hear people talking about parts per million or how many tonnes of carbon dioxide. And to me, a gas doesn't have a weight. So I'm like, how can you have a tonne of carbon dioxide? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. Your visuals that you're using in your piece, there's there's the landscape, which mm. is quite amazingly sparse and barren with just grass and, and sort of steep, steep hills. And But then you've also got these sort of bits of chrome and metal and gauges and, and scientific equipment and things like that, which mm. is quite interesting because it's like the landscape almost could be primordial and then you've got the highest level of human technology. Mm. It's quite quite antiquated as well. Some of that technology is very bespoke and like, you know, 1980s and stuff in there sure. as well. So yeah. Little graph. Yeah. Like yeah. Lines going up and down yeah. and little squiggles. And- yeah, but I, yeah, to do that next to each other is like these two things that are constantly working together you know, out of sight, invisibly kind of operating together to form this data collection, this history, this knowledge of our action here on Earth. You know, I think there's this kind of beauty in both of those things that are kind of operating simultaneously to, to document, but also influence. Like the scientists that work here, they they feed into UN, you know, Convention on Climate Change and systems and policies and they 
they feed back Australia's contribution to greenhouse gases back to the UN every year. And so it's this kind of, there's also like not just a collection process, but it's, it's about making change and influencing the way we do things. But I do, you know, I love there's this kind of like layers of, of human, machine, and, and, and environment like animals, plants, birds, this interaction between all of these, these different things that are constantly working, constantly engaging, and obviously as well with the history and the layers of side of colonization, of, of massacre, and yeah, it, it kind of speaks, it speaks to our times, I think, in terms of how, when did the Anthropocene begin, you know, some people say it's the beginning of colonization, you know. In Australia. Well, not just in Australia. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting. Yeah. There's all sorts of theories about when we started going wrong as a species. Mm. (laughs) Is it when we started farming and trying to control the land? Is Mm. it when we invented language and became cerebral instead of felt? Mm. Is it, you know, not language spoken, but language written is what I meant. And yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting to think about. Mm. And I often think about, this is off topic, but (laughs) I often think about how every time humanity has done something, it's in the name of advancement. Mm. And we've always thought we're making our lives better or the world better. Mm. But cumulatively, we've gotten Mm. to this point of Mm. mass destruction Mm. because of all of our advancements. Mm. And it's like, how far back do you go to stop that? Like, if we had a time machine, would we... Would we like be like Zeus and say humans shouldn't have fire? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. And we can't even imagine really what life would be like no. now, knowing what we know and having what we have. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's really hard to imagine, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this particular work? I think the soundscape is interesting. Tell us a little bit about the sound and we'll have some samples of that in this podcast. Yeah, well, the sound is made up of field recordings from both Cape Grim and Aspendale. So there's a lot of wind, a lot of natural sounds, the ocean, but then also the birds, insects, cows, and instruments that are constantly at work on both of those sites. So there's this kind of layering of sounds. But also I worked with one of my collaborators, Linda Dement, who has manipulated some of those sounds. Some of them form a kind of breathy sound, which feels like a breathing process. These kind of, again, we're constantly breathing and these things are constantly working. And so there's this undertone of of, of a constant breath that plays throughout. And I also collaborated with another musician from Cold Hands Warm Heart in Melbourne um, named Genevieve Fry. And and they're working on another part of the soundtrack, which will be at the festival. So it's still kind of, there's quite a lot of layers of sounds. And I've also been given access to marine recordings. So from other scientists who've done like whale recordings and seal recordings and all these other kind of marine animal recordings from big voyages. And they've and they've been extremely generous with their recordings. So some of those sounds are also part of this big, rich, layered, like, soundscape. 
And the waves crashing. Waves crashing and also we've got this geophone. You can put it in the earth and it records infrasonic sound and sounds that kind of come out as felt rather than heard. And yeah, so there's quite a lot of sounds going on and it's quite, it's a, it's a lot of subtlety in it, which hopefully will be able to be heard or felt. And so people walking into the good shed, you, you're going to set up this amazing array for the projection of the video to go on to. Tell us a bit about what you're planning. <laughs> well, I was given these weather balloons from the scientists I'm working with from CSIRO. They've found this collection of weather balloons. Actually, I saw this video from a voyage into the Southern Ocean of somebody releasing a weather balloon. And it was the most beautiful video that I saw. And so I'm going to do something with that. I'm going to make a new one. But I watched this weather balloon, this this person holding a weather balloon. And it was so windy on the ship. It's like blowing around like crazy. And I, and then, of course, it gets released, you know, and they've got the, the sons attached to it and they can measure the atmosphere from wherever they've released it. And I was like, weather balloons, of course. They're such a huge metaphor for, yeah. our, you know, global times. And, and then I asked the scientists if they had any. And he found me this big pile of weather balloons from, from the CSRO from the 80s that were not, obviously not going to get used anymore. And I was like, I wonder if I can project onto weather balloons. And the ones they gave me were orange, so I'm not sure if I could on those ones. But I have since purchased other ones, so I'm going to set up a few weather balloons and project onto them to kind of use as a surface. Yeah, so, cool. Mm. So weather balloons are kind of like, what, big? They can go up to six metres in diameter. So six metres in diameter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Or bigger. And they're, what, silver? Or Just white? clear latex, these ones. Yeah, right. Yeah. And do they biodegrade, perchance? No. <laughs> this is, this, there's actually a discussion about this. Yeah, right. They're made of latex, so. Yeah. I mean, actually, there is a discussion about environment, making environmentally friendly ones. Yeah. At the moment. But obviously, some people just find weather balloons on their property or yeah. on the beach or something. Or they're just in the ocean. Yeah. Floating around. Yeah. Oh. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. If only the people listening could see the discomfort on your face. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's been talked about, you know, it's like but there's I think, this process, there's yeah. this scientific process that also potentially causes harm. But I think you're, you're absolutely right in that that is quite a good symbol mm. in that case of what it takes for us to accurately measure and prove that climate change is human-induced and we really need to act now and what it takes to do that is actually in itself not innocent of harm, you know, but it's in sort of we have to pay some prices, I guess, or accept some, Mm. you know, to use war speak, collateral damage maybe. I don't know, but it's like, you know, Greta Thunberg is sails a yacht to get to a conference instead of taking a flight but the yacht still requires materials she's not going to walk there that would take six months or more yeah (laughs) you know like there's there's always some level of compromise isn't there and to live with no use is not necessarily what we're like not using anything is not necessarily the end game here is it no just in excess beyond yes belief yeah 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 we don't want everyone to walk around naked and and never eat anything ever again yeah or use any materials you know yeah 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 
but that's that's a constant conversation isn't it within sustainability mm. is what is the level of what's acceptable and and i think you know we in the west have such extraordinarily high standard of what unacceptable is like unacceptable for us would be absolute luxury for so many people in the mm, world absolutely. <laughs> and through history yeah. think about how people lived through the majority of history yeah absolutely yeah there's a conflict between human rights and planetary rights which yeah. is yeah where yeah the ethical conundrum lies yeah. i think for many and which is where books like donut economics is trying to resolve that mm. have you read that no it's a great book. Oh, I'll lend it to you. Thanks. It's an economics book. She's basically talking about our entire way of life and how we need to consider when we're thinking about what we're doing, either as a country or as a human being, an individual. The centre of the donut is human rights. So how can we maintain a certain level of living so that humans are safe and happy and have freedom and are not harmed? But there's another level of where we don't want to exceed which is to what point of damage to the to the earth and to the ecosystems and stuff like that. It's a good concept. She doesn't exactly say how to do it. She just says, we need to think about yeah. this. Yeah. Which is <laughs> but there's places like, there's cities in Europe that are adopting it as as a city. Yeah, great. They're, they're adopting donut economics as a model. Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to say about the show coming up? How about how it sits in your larger thesis? And, and what this moment in time is and this exhibition is in terms of the bigger picture of your explorations. Mm, time will tell, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think this is all preliminary kind of investigation and I work really well by responding to place and responding to site and responding to people who are talking about their work and their history and their story. And for me, that's a huge part of this research is is trying to understand you know to, to have conversation with scientists who've been doing this work for a long time and they're implementing practices of care in this really kind of subtle way care for the earth and care for all of us in this really beautiful but hidden way and you know the land is is doing that constantly as well and I'm kind of really interested in just different ways of 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 feeding back these kind of processes to have this bigger conversation that we're talking about here and the work will evolve in in many different ways through other other forms not just video and sound it'll be lots of different things and i think that it's the the kind of process of research which will help me know that but i guess the big questions are around i guess what we talked about at the beginning around the role of art in this conversation and how how to use it as a as a place of discovery, of of understanding, of of access, you know, access into these ideas and and not shutting people out from them, and how that how it forms one part of a bigger story. So let's talk a bit more about your other work as your history as an artist and a photographer and filmmaker and whatever else you've done, and how it's played in with your sense of activism and justice and on different levels so is there a moment or is there something you think back and you go oh that's that's when I really started to think this is what I want to do with my life or have you fumbled along and figured it out you seem pretty like you you decide things and you (laughs) you, you've been on this track lots of fumbling yeah well I think there's been a few moments and I think coming from a kind of documentary 
background. Really, you know, when I first started doing photography, when I was kind of in my late teens, or I did it in my early teens and in high school and stuff. But when I was like, I want to do this, I was like, I want to be a photojournalist. Like, I want to kind of travel the world and meet people and respond. And that's the way I'm going to engage. And I want to use my photography to kind of learn about the world and also talk about social justice issues. And then I think getting involved in the anti-nuclear movement in Australia and to use my work in collaboration with others and in collaboration with campaigns and activism, I kind of started to see that there are obviously big power issues in relation to photography and imbalances of power around how stories are told, how fr- how images are framed, who's, so who's got holding the camera, who's holding the camera and, and which, you know, how, how, who's, who's being shown and who's not being shown and how that story is being told. And, you know, this is a big question around the ethics of photography. Like it's an ongoing conversation. And well, we it saw it just during COVID. This, yeah. A journalist went down to a beach and from above you can see that everyone is socially distanced, but he took it with a particular lens mm. that foreshortened things mm. and made it look like it was a super crowded beach. Mm. Yeah, manipulation of truth and that's yeah. huge, you know, ethical conundrums of, of photographic practice and still big questions. Yeah, and the topic of the Photo 2021, which is a festival of photography on right now in Melbourne, is truth. It's still an ongoing conversation around yeah. What is photography in a time of post-truth? It's still a big question. But for me, when I was in my late teens and I was like, okay, I'm working with Aboriginal communities and and social justice groups and I can see that there's a potential problem here and how can I do my best to undo those dynamics and undo those relations and make it more collaborative and make it more relational? And, you know, they were kind of questions that made me stop wanting to be a photojournalist and, you know, more kind of work within different formats. So collaborate with others who are doing sound or collaborate with others who are doing video and collaborate with community members who are part of the story. And, yeah, I think that was one moment and I think I saw some work when I was travelling in Israel and Palestine and that really spoke to me. I think it was by Lida Abdul and it's just this kind of beautiful way of speaking about war but it was so not what you'd think about when you're thinking about war. It was like these these kind of young children who had tied strings or ropes to a, a, a plane that had been either bombed or had fallen from the sky as part of a war and they were kind of playing with this plane through this. It was their playground. It was their playground, but it was like this imagination that they were living within this kind of zone and it was like this is how you can you can speak to these issues in different ways and I think that was another moment for me which was like how can I talk about the things that I'm interested in through different means, through different ways of engaging with these stories. It's not just about saying something is something and yeah. then that's how you should experience it and that's what we should be told and I think that kind of pushed me onto a journey of going, I want to explore these things and I want to find different ways of telling stories and engaging with these issues. That was Jessie Boylan talking about her artwork for the Castlemaine State Festival called The Smallest Measure. Her work at Cape Grin will continue and you can follow her on her website, the link of which is in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. So tune in next week as I 
hopefully get a chance to speak with the creators of Here Here, another piece at the Castlemaine State Festival, which explores the environment and our connection to it. Also coming soon will be a couple of episodes from my recent trip to Mildura. Mildura is a major regional city about 425 kilometres north of Castlemaine and a four and a half hour drive if you don't take any breaks. So when me and my friend Trace went up, we did take breaks and it took us most of the day to get up to Mildura because we had lunch and little swap drivings and walks and stretches and things. And Mildura is a city that I haven't been to much before. I've really just driven through it. And it was really nice to spend some time there. We spent four days not doing an awful lot, except I caught a couple of interviews with some people and Trace was visiting her son. It's a city of wide streets, surprisingly green lawns, given that they're on the edge of the desert and the incredible wide paddle steamer supporting Murray River. You can see photos of the trip on the Saltgrass Instagram and Facebook pages. And in a couple of weeks, I'll have some of the interviews I gathered up there for you to listen to about how a city survives in a climate that could be very similar to what central Victoria will face in the future. That is several degrees hotter and much drier. And we don't have a ginormous river running through our town. (laughs) I have an in-depth chat with the mayor and the sustainability officers of Mildura about the climate emergency, what water management means up there, and the incredible uptake of solar power in the region. I also had a morning at the local eco-village where I had a chat with a collection of people who were there on a gardening working bee and why they help in a place like that and what it takes to keep the community gardens and communal areas of of a place like that going. There were a couple of people who were volunteering there that day who also work on an organisation called Greening Mildura. So we have a chat about what that is all about. And I'm planning to go up there again in September. So now that I've been up there and seen the place, I'm hoping to sow a few seeds and and maybe get more interviews in September from, from that region. My name is Alison Hanley. And that is all we have for this episode of Saltgrass. As ever, links to many of the things discussed can be found in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. Go to saltgrasspodcast.com for all back episodes of the show. And of course, subscribe to Saltgrass on your favorite podcasting app. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. Salt, salt, salt of the earth. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green at saltgrasspodcast.com.